I think we're all interested in developing, uh, you know, alternative energy sources. But in Canada right now, the oil and gas industry is a very, very important economic driver. We're talking about an, an industry that generates, you know, $12 billion a year. And there's a balance between what we do that may have an impact on the environment. We drive our cars to work and yet we are concerned with, with global warming. This kind of fits in that realm, you know, we need to know what the risks are of transporting the oil, uh, how best to respond to spills. Spills are a very, very rare event. Reality is they do sometimes happen and so we need to be prepared for that. This is the Down to Earth podcast. This podcast is about extraordinary ideas for a better world. My name is Sumit Bath. I am the communications manager at IISD Experimental Lakes Area, which is the world's freshwater laboratory. So today we're going to talk about a really exciting and unique piece of research in a very remote part of Canada. If I were to tell you that there are a series of researchers who are intentionally spilling oil into an enclosure within a lake, you'd probably be surprised. But I guarantee you the reason why they're doing it is all in the name of science and it's all in the name of environmental protection. So we're going to explore why we are intentionally spilling oil into a lake, how we're doing it and what we're hoping to learn by conducting this research. I don't know if you'll be able to see the blackness on top of the water, but it is pretty apocalyptic and horrifying. It looks and smells like poison. There's still a lot of oil coming out of the sediment. Wherever we stood, we actually had oil coming up out of the ground. This has an impact on the vegetation and also the wildlife in the area, and it also increases the marsh erosion. I mean, we're finding dangerous levels of oil and toxic dispersants in our in our swimming pools. You know, pipelines run through every part of this continent and it's likely that you live close to a place that has a pipeline that runs through it. Um, so it's in your best interest that the industries that, that regulate and, and operate these pipelines are doing their very best to make sure that they are protecting the environment, that they understand what happens when an oil spill occurs, and that they are fully equipped with all of the information they need to clean up an oil spill if it does happen, or to make sure that it doesn't. Everyone is always astonished when I tell them what I do and where I work. Um, but nothing astonishes them more when I sit them down and I say to them, we are intentionally adding oil into a lake in the name of science. It's a very surprising piece of research and it always captures people's imagination. And that really captures the essence of what we do at the experimental lakes area. We take a few lakes in the middle of Canada and we use those to improve fresh water around the world. And the work on oil spills is really the pinnacle of that style of research. I think it's fascinating.
So it's unlikely that you've ever been close to the Experimental Lakes area. It was chosen to be in a very remote spot because it, it, it was always meant to be a series of pristine lakes that hadn't already been touched by human activity and that were intentionally far away from, from any sources of pollution. So you drive down a very long highway where you feel like there is nothing around you for miles. And then you stop and you start to drive up a gravel road. And you always underestimate and you always misremember how long that road is. Um, you know it takes you 45 minutes to drive up it, but mentally you have to prepare for about a two hour drive and you keep driving over this gravel road. You are surrounded by trees and you think, I, I can't imagine there are any lakes close by. But then as you're driving down, you start to peek through the trees and you see glimpses of these beautiful lakes. But you keep driving down, you keep driving down the gravel road and then you start to see these tiny flags. And these tiny flags denote the different lakes, Lake 114 or Lake 260. You will arrive at the camp and there is a massive Canadian flag to greet you and you know that you have arrived. My name is uh, Vince Pallas. I'm the head research scientist for the IISD Experimental Lakes Area. He is one of the key researchers and one of the people who really led this research into oil spills. So I think that's one of the biggest surprises to people when they arrive on camp. I mean, we tell them about it being a remote field location. But when you come through the woods, when you arrive in camp, what you see is a lot of buildings, so dormitory-style accommodations for students. We have a main eating and kitchen area. We have a shop where we do repairs or, or a wood shop where we can do things. We have a fish lab, uh, and we have a fully functioning uh, chemistry lab. So it, it's quite shocking to people, I think, the, the amount of development. And there's really only a few buildings, like less than 15 buildings out there, but uh, you sort of expect to, it to be um, just op open woods kind of area, and it's, it's not. It's far more developed than that. But it's remote enough that if, if you've forgotten something, it's a real pain in the butt to go to, you know, Home Depot in, in Kenora or Dryden. So IISD Experimental Lakes Area is the world's fresh water laboratory and there's really nowhere else like it. And whenever I talk about it, I always say it's a completely unique place on Earth. That's actually not really true though. The point is, they are a series of 58 lakes that are particularly unremarkable. The lakes themselves are, are not unique. And they were chosen because they reflect and are similar to most of the lakes that you will find in this continent. They are supposed to be representative of boreal system lakes, which is bore the boreal landscape covers about two thirds of Canada. If you're not familiar with the boreal zone, it's essentially a massive area of forests and woodlands. It's full of thousands of lakes and rivers and wetlands. It's habitat for a wide range of animals, insects, and in fact, half of the bird species in Canada. It's an area of 58 lakes that have been set aside for research. But what makes them unique is uh, that we have special legislation at the provincial level, so in Ontario and at the federal level, that allows us to uh, what we call manipulate the lakes. So we can actually add things to the lakes, we can change the flow of them, we can add uh, chemicals to them to see how those disturbances affect 
the equilibrium of those systems. So I always like to refer to the Experimental Lakes area's greatest hits. Um, I feel as though every decade we've existed, we've done multiple projects, but there's always one major research project that we've done. One of the most famous experiments that's gone on at, at the Experimental Lakes area is a mercury addition. So we know that when we burn fossil fuels, we release uh, mercury. Uh, and it's carried through the atmosphere and deposited, you know, far off from where it was or originated. And so we know, for example, certain hotspots around the world that there are higher concentrations of mercury. So how does that affect the systems there? It's difficult to say because there's so many other disturbances on most of those systems. So if you think about the eastern seaboard of, of Canada and the U.S., for example, how do you tease out what the effect of mercury is when you have all these other disturbances from human activity? Whereas at our facility, we're able to add just the mercury. First of all, we've been studying the systems for decades. We know how they vary. But then you add the mercury. So if there is a change in that system, we're fairly certain that it's the mercury and it's not something else. Back in the end of the 60s and early 70s, we looked at the impact of phosphorus on algal blooms. Um, and we determined that it's actually an overabundance of phosphorus that leads to those horrible sticky green layers of slime you see on lakes uh, that can be toxic to, to those who live in them and those who drink from them. Uh, then we moved on to focus on acid rain, so um, the impact of acid rain on fish, where the acidity comes from. We looked at the impact of building dams and reservoirs on the health of lakes and on greenhouse gas emissions. And then we focused on estrogen. So the estrogen that you find in uh, female birth control pills, uh, what impact that has on fish. And I'll give you the spoiler, it can turn male fish female. And now we are focused on one of our major research projects, which is seeing what happens when uh, oil from a pipeline hits fresh water. That project came about as a result of um, some gaps that have been identified in our knowledge about how diluted bitumen behaves in freshwater. Yeah, Tika Newton's great. I've, I've worked with her for years. She now works for the Climate Action Network in Kenora. Now, Kenora is the town that's closest to the Experimental Lakes area, and she's been an advocate for green and environmental issues for a long time, and she's been a friend of ours for a long time. So she was really a key person to consult with. I got involved in the uh, intervention on the Energy East project. Uh, I first learned about it in 2013 and started working on it in 2014. And at about the same time, the researchers at the Experimental Lakes area were also becoming interested in their own intervention since the pipeline was proposed to trap right across the ELA property at the very north end. Uh, so we were sharing information um, about what we knew, what we didn't know, what we proposed to address in our interventions, and we had mutual interest in trying to highlight the risks that we saw, uh, potential risks to fresh water. So in the event that a, there was ever a leak or a rupture of a pipeline, what would the impacts be in a region such as ours that is so heavily dependent on and covered in fresh water. As with many science projects, it sometimes takes the stars to align a bit. So you've got to get the right people on board, you've got to get the right funding in place, you've got to get the okay. 
And we had some really great conversations with all of the stakeholders. So that goes from national governments and the industries that run and operate the pipelines to the First Nations who live in the surrounding areas and the local communities. That was really key to getting the research off the ground. Northwestern Ontario from from the air <laughs> is all water. It's little bits of yeah. land connected by water and it's all interconnected waterways. So we really wanted to understand as much as we could about that. Um, and at the time, there really wasn't any uh, public research available, any peer-reviewed public research that gave us any insights in, uh, as to what to expect. And so Vince started to look into this project and started to pull together resources and expertise and craft a proposal. And yeah. And the rest is history. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> you know, you can conduct a fair amount of research when there's a spill, what they call the spill of opportunity. So there's an oil spill, let's go to that site and let's do some research to understand how the oil is behaving. So there has been some research already conducted on the impact of when an oil spill hits freshwater. But often the research that's been conducted has been on actual oil spills. The problem with that approach is there's a lot of other things going on at that time. People are trying to clean up that oil and doing research is not the primary goal there. It's getting the oil out of the water. And so understanding what was there before and where the oil was spilled, how does that compare to where uh, the oil did not reach, etc., is, is not the primary goal. And, it, and it, it gets lost in that activity. Whereas at the Experimental Lakes area, for decades we've been studying these systems, 50 years we've been studying these systems. We know about the biological, the chemical variability. Now taking that knowledge and adding the oil, now we know exactly how the oil is impacting that system. We can monitor or control everything. We can monitor the lake before we release the oil so we know exactly what the chemistry is like, what the health of the fish is like, what type of invertebrates live there, how many of them. We know exactly how much oil we have spilled into the lake and we know when it went in and we know what type of oil it was and then we know exactly how much we've attempted to clean off. So a few key individuals, myself, uh, being one of them, put this together and developed the two separate programs. One of them looking at how oil weathers, how it behaves in the environment, and the other one looking at how do we best clean it up. And let's fast forward uh, a couple of weeks, months, years. We've got the results. What do we plan to do with them? Well, I'll talk about the one that, uh, that I'm mainly leading, and that's how, how do we best clean it up. What we're really looking at here is developing a guidance tool so that when there is a, an oil spill, people don't have to, you know, by trial and error, try different techniques for cleaning that oil up. So there is a recipe for your oil has spilled in a shoreline that's of a type of a wetland or a shoreline that has a rocky shore. These are the best tools to institute to clean it up. And here's how you measure whether or not you're being successful. And if you're not being successful, these are the things that you do uh, to increase your success rate. That's really the goal, is to get to a place where we can uh, give those tools to practitioners and have them be able to remediate the system to a greater extent more quickly. So I've said before that the, the magic, if you like, of the experimental lakes area is that we research on the full lake. And I'm going to take that back for a second. 
So the setup looks like a lot of enclosures. We are very famous at the Experimental Lakes area for doing whole ecosystem, whole lake experiments. So we actually, the mercury experiment I spoke about before, we added very, very tiny amounts of mercury to an entire lake. For oil, of course, we can't do that. We, we don't want to contaminate a whole lake with oil. And so what we do is we use enclosures. Uh, so we isolate a column of water and the underlying sediment so that we can manipulate it and use it as a model for what would happen in the whole lake. And, and how are we confident that that's going to be representative of the lake? Well, we've been doing this for decades. We've been using uh, enclosures that are 2 meters, 5 meters, 10 meters in diameter. The 10 meter ones enclose you know, virtually all of the entire ecosystem that a lake would have. So we can include fish in them. Of course it has the algae and the, and the bugs that live on the bottom, etc. And I've seen these beautiful drone uh, shots of them. They're essentially small rectangular enclosures that sit on the surface of the water. And then what you can't see is under the water, you've got these plastic sheets that go right down to the sediment. So right down to the bottom of the lake. And then there are approximately a billion gajillion sandbags that hold them in place. And the reason why we're so particular about really cementing those plastic sheets in the bottom of the lake is we want to make sure that that column of the water is protected from the rest of the lake. It's completely removed from the rest of the lake. So we can manipulate those systems. We can add oil to the smaller system and then use models to scale up what would happen in a whole lake. So by that way, we can, we can avoid contaminating an entire lake and we can also create an environment where removing the oil at the end of the experiment is much, much easier. You know, you could imagine that scrubbing an area that's 10 meters in diameter and, and a meter and a half deep is a lot easier than taking it out of an entire lake where the oil can find its way into nooks and crannies. So they've set up the enclosures already uh, and last year they ran what we're basically considering to be a pilot study. They looked at the effects of the oil on the sediment of the lake and the vegetation in the shoreline. So one of the things that they found was that oil that spilled close to the shoreline tends to stick to the sand and the soil of the shoreline instead of mixing with the water. So actually you'll find that less oil is dissolving in that water when it's in a shallow area close to the shoreline. So we will run an, another experiment this year and we'll look at comparing different shoreline environments. If the shoreline is a rocky, cobble type of, uh, of architecture versus if it's a wetland where there's a lot of peat and, and vegetation on the shoreline, the oil will behave quite differently there. So we want to be able to uh, derive techniques that can clean up the oil from both of those types of environments and anywhere in between. Those are two of the, the sort of extremes. Uh, so this year we'll have 16 enclosures. Not all of those have oil, of course. We have references. We have. Uh, oil added to some of them and then we use different remediation techniques. Now the remediation techniques that we're looking at are very what we call non-invasive. So one of the things that we found with the pilot study was it was the activity of us walking on the shoreline uh, that had a greater impact than the oil in fact. So you know you sort of you know, trample that vegetation, you have a great impact, it increases erosion in that area. So when we looked at using our, our we use satellite imagery actually satellites flying over to take pictures of the vegetation and then to uh, use those to um, measure the health of the vegetation on the shoreline. And we found that what we could see was our path of walking, but not necessarily where the oil was. 
So this year we want to use non-invasive techniques, uh, things like low pressure water washing of that oil off of the shoreline. Uh, there are things called shoreline cleaners, kind of like a detergent that will remove the oil from the shoreline. Uh, and then the new technique that we're actually uh, pioneering called engineered floating wetlands. These are really uh, platforms with, with plants on them and it's not necessarily the plants that do all the work. It's the root balls of these plants that hang underneath the platform that are a very, very rich environment for bacteria and the bacteria actually eat the oil. They actually generate their energy by consuming the oil. So what we want to do is see if there are ways that we can increase the bacterial community, the natural bacterial community. We're not adding any bacteria here. We're simply facilitating the, the growth of those bacteria that are already there uh, so that they can increasingly eat that oil and uh, remove it from the, the site more rapidly. So these are the kinds of non-invasive techniques that we're trying to develop. So the whole project is priced at around five and a half million dollars and the variety of funding sources reflect the variety of stakeholders that we've really engaged with to get this research off the ground. So we're receiving money from different governments, from academic institutions, and we're also getting money from private sources, and that includes the oil industry itself. Uh, Nancy, if you could state your full name, your full title, and your organization. Sure. My name is Nancy Berard brown and I'm the manager of oil markets and transportation at the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. There's always a bit of scepticism when you say that you are working with the oil industry to research the environmental impacts of oil. But for me, it's a really obvious match. The oil industry wants to perform at its optimal level and it wants to make sure that its practices are not impacting the environment. And they also want to understand better what potential impacts can be and how they can mitigate those as best as possible. So it's a very obvious relationship for us. Well, I think the public is concerned about the environment and I believe there's a lot of misinformation out there. So I think it's important for the public to know that there are preventive measures and response plan in the event that there was an incident that occurred. So our industry, I believe, has a social responsibility and independent research such as the one being undertaken will provide insights and learning. So I think that's very important to the average person. So if you're still sceptical about the good intentions of industry, you should know that Tika Newton, that's our environmentalist, believes that the involvement of industry is absolutely essential. There's a very good reason for that. Um, if one is to study the properties of proprietary chemicals and diluted bitumen's composition is proprietary to those industry partners who uh, manufacture the product, it's necessary to have their buy-in, to be able to access their data, to be able to work with them and understand what the product is and get, and get all that access to information. Um, and then it also helps to validate the results at the end of the day. It's, it can't be decried as being a partisan project mm -hmm. or, you know, the, the results are what they are. <laughs> and everybody has been openly involved in, uh, in designing and implementing the project. One thing you have to remember is that we live in the world that we live in. And here in North America, we rely greatly on the oil that runs through pipelines. So we have to remember that this is a reality we're living in 
And if we want to improve and protect the environment, yes, of course, we need to transition to clean energy. But we also need to improve the state of energy that we currently use. And although we want to transition, we need to make sure that the current state of our energy sourcing is sustainable and is clean. I think by working on this project and by working at the Experimental Lakes area, I've got a better understanding of where our water comes from. I mean, I think about you know, my relationship to the natural environment and to freshwater specifically is either seeing a park in a big city or turning on the tap and I just see the water and it comes out and I don't have to worry about it. And I think working on this uh, from a very different angle, I get to understand that there are massive, massive ecosystems at play behind the scenes and that they really need to be protected. It's really interesting to understand the processes that take place to allow us to live our lives and how much we depend on nature, how much nature gives to us, um, and how that can be a bit precarious, how we have to work hard to understand the role that humans play in affecting the environment and then we have to be active in protecting it. Thanks for listening to Down to Earth, a podcast from the International Institute for Sustainable Development. IISD is an independent think tank that delivers the knowledge to act. Through research, science and analysis, we tackle the root causes of some of the greatest challenges facing our planet today. Find out more at www.iisd.org. This episode was created by Sumit Bath. Special thanks to Vince Palace, Tika Newton, Nancy Berard Brown, Patrick Smythe, Simone Fauché, and Tanya Zielinski. Down to Earth is produced, edited, and mixed by Carmen Clausen. Find more episodes at iisd.org slash podcast. If you have questions about what you just heard, other thoughts about this episode, or ideas for a future episode, tweet us at iisd underscore news. <laughs>